Blunt, confronting, disruptive. Debunks Australia's greatest myth, that is, of its independence. These are some of the things being said about uh, a provocative new book by intelligence expert and professor of international and political studies at the University of New South Wales, Clinton Fernandes. Clinton argues that Australians ought to be ought to be told the real character of our relationship with the US. It's one that is transactional and uh, dramatically unequal, he says, and in which we are more correctly a sub-imperial power that is eagerly and routinely acting to help the US keep its imperial position at the apex of global power, views with which I wholeheartedly agree. So, uh, and I guess AUKUS is probably the most uh, recent example, tying our military machine ever more tightly to the US. The book is uh, Sub-Imperial Power, Australia in the International Arena, and uh, Clinton joins us now. Clinton, you are going to make yourself a very unpopular professor. Hello. about that. I hope it uh, makes me an accurate uh, academic rather than unpopular or popular. What are, what are you trying to do? Well, I'm basically uh, taking a leaf out of Wittgenstein's uh, idea, which is to, you know, he said the aim of philosophy was to show the fly the way out of the fly bottle. And in a way, I've, I'm trying to show a whole bunch of other academics and commentators the way out of the fly bottle as well, uh, because we keep talking about ourselves as a middle power that's trying to uphold a rules-based international order. And then you see the flies buzzing around the fly bottle in their doctrinal cocoons, in a way, arguing about what is a middle power, what is a rules-based order. And I think uh, these are all mystifications, uh, because what we're really upholding is an imperial order. Um, and I try to make that case in the book. So if you allow me to do that, uh, when we think about an empire, <clears throat> we normally think about an empire as a physical occupation of some other country, like the British Raj directly ruling India. Um, but the essence of an empire is actually control of another country's sovereignty. Direct physical rule is not the only way to do that. You can control another country's sovereignty, influence it heavily, uh, through trade agreements, through investment agreements, through putting military bases, through intelligence operations. And in all those cases, you can do that through collaboration, uh, integration of one country's economy into your own, um, and you can control another country's sovereignty in that way. Now, if you accept that definition, it's unmistakable that the United States is an imperial power which sits at the apex of a hierarchically structured imperial system. We can look in, in French-speaking Africa, for example, when if France itself controls the sovereignty of many of its former colonies. We've got no difficulty in recognizing that. You know, there's no difficulty in recognizing, um, for example, when Russia wants to exert a controlling influence over the sovereignty of Ukraine or countries in its region. Well, the United States' ability to exercise control over other countries' sovereignty is uh, far greater uh, now, where do we fit in all this? I say we are not a middle power because that, that term doesn't mean anything. You know, what you need to do is not just uh, pick a term that you choose, like I say potato, you say potato. Uh, what you want to do is put that term within the context of an explanatory framework which shows you how this thing is actually going to work, what problems can it address, what light can it shed. 
And so we are both sub-imperial and powerful. That's what it means to be a sub-imperial power. We are powerful in that we exert imperial control, in a way, of uh, uh, the sovereignty of countries like East Timor, Papua New Guinea, the Solomon Islands. But we are sub-imperial in that we subordinate our own sovereignty in the interests of the imperial power, and we act in our foreign policy, our diplomacy, our defense, uh, to uphold that imperial order. And we never use the term, for example, international law and the United Nations Charter. Instead, we use euphemisms like rules-based international order. Uh, and so I think an anthropologist would have no difficulty in, in <laughs> recognizing you know, that we're in the presence of a taboo, some terrifying, terrifying truth that cannot be uttered. We can't say empire, so we've got to say rules-based order. At the heart of your book is the argument that uh, the Australian Parliament and the public is kept in the dark about what's really motivating our national security and defence actions. You yes. see, this is absolutely a scandalous situation. Yes. Well, that's right. Look, I mean, take the most uh, uh, talked about topic at the moment in defence. It's those nuclear submarines, those nuclear-powered submarines. Uh, and, you, you know, the, the, the normal line is we are spending $170 billion to acquire eight submarines. But think of it this way. If you had to decided to buy a car that somebody else supplied that you were unable to maintain in your own country, you couldn't repair it, you couldn't service it, you couldn't refuel it. Well, it's not really your car. What you're doing is you're funding the other country's submarine budget. Now, that's, those submarines will ob obviously have an Aussie flag on it. Uh, it'll have some Australian personnel on it. Uh, but they really will not be operated in your interests. And what that action does, it's a deliberate act. It's not a mistake. You've got to understand. The people responsible for the policy know exactly what they're doing. They're doing this in order to make it impossible for a future Australian government uh, to be independent to be regionally integrated rather than to be subordinated to a NATO interest. I am shocked at your proposition that we're the most secretive of all the liberal democracies. You know, I have to say that I can't claim credit for that. That's the New York Times judgment on Australia. I was simply quoting the New York Times, which said that Australia is the most secretive of all the liberal democracies. You know, uh, two years ago, uh, no, actually one year ago, you had me on your show uh, to talking about the declassification of records showing we'd helped the CIA overthrow Salvador Allende in Chile in 1973. Now, the, the United States has declassified thousands of its own records and which demonstrate its involvement in that coup. We have not. We, we've we've you know, declassified some records. But for the most part, we refuse to confirm or deny um, any other details about that. Now, that doesn't protect intelligence uh, or national security. It protects policymakers from scrutiny by the public. That's, what, that's the real aim of policy in that sense. And we don't have congressional inquiries into declassified intelligence documents. Now, you make a compelling point about supposed expertise behind this sort of uh, policy-making. Talk to supposed expertise. Well, I mean, if you want expertise, uh, then an expert should actually shed light on something in a way that the average person who works hard cannot. There must be some technical expertise that is required in order to understand something. Uh, earlier this week, there was a breach of an Optus um, uh, application pro programming interface, uh, just a, a platform. 
But you needed somebody with technical skills to explain what had actually gone wrong. Uh, and the average person who had not studied some technical information would not be able to explain that. And you can say the same about physics, biology, a whole bunch of other things. In politics, that's simply not true. There is no special inside skill that's needed to make judgments. And we can, we can see that about the, the, the competence of expertise in our longest running war. You know, we've had um, experts saying that the uh, the only person uh, who thinks that there is no chance of military victory in Afghanistan is Joe Biden. You've got the chief of the defense force saying that, uh, you know, there's going to be a nego negotiated settlement. Well, two months later, the entire thing collapses. And so what exactly is this expertise they have other than something protected by security clearance? Now, that, that's really the only uh, relevance of my former military background in army intelligence, uh, that, that I know that there ain't nothing in there. I'm talking to uh, Clinton Fernandez. Clinton, you've uh, got some very pertinent examples regarding our relationship with the US. Let's take Afghanistan, the disastrous tro troop withdrawal. Yes. Well, I mean, look, the, uh, uh, the Afghanistan government's forces uh, collapsed very quickly, but they did it in a way that resembled the US-backed Iraqi army's collapse some years before that. Um, in both cases, there was a problem with corruption and a crisis of legitimacy. But for our purposes, the key thing is, uh, the real goal of the Australian mission in Afghanistan was to show relevance to the United States. The real goal was never disclosed to the public in a meaningful way. Instead, we were told there was something about reconstructing Afghanistan, rebuilding it, rights of women, uh, good governance, democracy, things like that. Now, the real goal was actually achieved. The real goal was never disclosed to the public, but it was achieved. Instead, uh, we sent the equivalent of uh, footy players uh, you know, I'm talking about athletes, athletic-type people in the in the special air service, into the same country, without any clear, uh, meaningful mission for year after year after year after year, and then we act surprised about what happened. Now, the reason for that policy action was to show relevance to the United States, and that real reason was never disclosed to the public. So that's what I mean by secrecy. Uh, it was it. The, the average person could not make a judgment on what was going wrong, not because of any lack of expertise, but because they were never told in a meaningful fashion what the real uh, objective was. Well, the US and Australia had, as you point out, buckets of intelligence, decades yes. of experience yes. that indicated uh, what was going to happen. But we had Angus Cam Campbell, uh, Chief of Defence, saying that no one could have predicted it. It was except in hindsight. Well, what what were the intelligence services doing? If they'd been there for twenty years, you know, with with the ability to to scrape Afghanistan's mobile networks for metadata, uh, for uh, you know, to, to record every conversation in the country. Uh, you know, they spend more money on uh, collectively the the allies spend more more money on reconstructing Afghanistan than on the Marshall Plan to reconstruct Europe after the Second World War. <laughs> it's up, uh, it's up yet, there with the CIA's failure to predict the fall of the Soviet. Well, you know, Philip, the thing is, the now the ship of uh, state has moved on, and we're all now sailing into the Taiwan Strait. And you've got the same or similar types of experts who claim expertise in Afghanistan now pivoting to be experts on China and the Taiwan Strait. There's been no inquiry into the failure of intelligence you're describing, has there? No, there's never been. You know, the thing is, our parliament 
cannot examine um, any intelligence operation by any intelligence agency, past, present, or proposed. Right? Uh, they can only examine the administration and financing of the agencies. Uh, the investigations of the agencies is done by the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, which is an institution within the executive branch of government. There is no parliamentary oversight. Um, you know, even today, Parliament cannot be told that we spied on East Timor, despite the fact that there were prosecutions of Witness K. Uh, there was a prosecution of Bernard Collary, which was then dropped. But even now at the ACT courts, uh, there are court proceedings to prevent anything leaking out or anything being disclosed officially that we spied on Timor. How can Parliament... Uh, uh, you know, provide oversight. Now, what I'm trying to say, though, is that that's a deliberate choice because it allows us to go to the United States and say, we can do certain things without parliamentary obstruction or parliamentary scrutiny, uh, what anybody else might call democratic accountability. You know, you guys can't because you've got your Congress looking at it. We can because we, we, we don't have any parliamentary oversight. You look back to the Iraq invasion and point out that it quashed any idea that the security of, Australia, of the Australian nation was at the core of foreign and trade policy. Yeah, well, because the, the intelligence uh, showed that an, in the invasion of Iraq would be followed by a greater terrorist threat. And yet the invasion of Iraq uh, proceeded and Australia joined it. Uh, but the point I want to make is that it was a success of policy properly understood, but never disclosed to the public. The real aim of our policy was to show relevance to the United States. We actually won the Iraq war. I mean, I, I hate to say it like this way, but we achieved all our objectives. Iraq certainly didn't. Uh, the Bush administration didn't, but Australia did. And now the problem is that that real objective was never disclosed to the public. And, in way, and, and that's what I mean by a diminution of our sovereignty in the interests of the imperial order. We are preventing our own parliament from exercising its duties and its rights in the interests of upholding that so-called rules-based international order, which is an imperial order. Let's look ahead now. Uh, there's the current concerns regarding China and Taiwan. The Australian public, you argue, isn't being told the real story behind our tensions with China. What is the real story, uh, Clinton? <laughs> Well, the real, the real U.S. objective is to ensure that Taiwan remains a critical node in a security architecture so that the United States and its allies can project power against China from the east. Its other goal is to slow down China's technological advancement to prevent it from reaching the technological frontier, specifically in the in the uh, domains of semiconductor technology um, and uh, the, the the cutting edge technologies of the future. Australia also has options, and this is the point of us being sub-imperial. We are not a vassal state. You know, we we are we are a powerful state of our own, uh, but we deliberately avoid exerting sovereignty in certain ways. Let me give you an example, Philip. Um, we are rich in critical minerals, which are necessary for a high-tech world. There, there are certain critical commodities, uh, rare metals, rare earths, things like that, which are critical, uh, not just for the, the technological society of the future, but also for the renewable energy transition. We can, if we wanted to, set up a national critical minerals company. And then we can invite foreign 
tech, tech firms that want to manufacture electric cars or semi-autonomous cars or whatever else to come to Australia, show us, share some of the technology with us, and then we can participate in some equity manner in trying to, um, uh, you know, manufacture these vehicles. The real aim of what we're actually doing is setting up a critical minerals facilitation office to provide the raw materials to the European Union and the United States so that they can make the, that's, uh, you know, the advanced vehicles and the advanced devices, and then we buy them back. So that, to me, is a sub-imperial mentality because you have, you have the resources. Why not set up a national critical minerals company unless you're making a deliberate choice to subordinate your sovereignty in the interests of the overall order. And you see that as basically what AUKUS is all about. Oh, that's exactly what it is, yeah. AUKUS is about orienting us towards uh, uh, what, what might be called global NATO, which is basically the United States, the United Kingdom, and its Western European allies, and preventing us from having an independent defence policy which can also be integrated with our region. And this actually may, may be the wrong bet, because you see by the 2040s, when these submarines uh, eventually arrive, they'll remember the eight submarines for $171 billion. By that stage, Australia might have 40 million people. Indonesia's economy could well be you know, larger than Japan's. Um, and because they're rich in, in nickel and copper, they also want to be making some of these electric vehicles, so they could be a much, a much different economic land. Landscape. And here we are, unable to integrate in a defense security architecture with them, but rather we are, we are looking back to, uh, to uh, you know, the North Atlantic. I, I'm suddenly going back to the Whitlam era. In Gough, we had one prime minister who did perhaps, uh, you know, rattle the cage a bit, and it did not, he did not do well out of it. Dare we take your path? Well, I think... <laughs> Something that is done without the knowledge and support of the public could well fail. And that's why it's important to let get the word out that we actually have these abilities and that builds public support for it. You know, because what really counts is hegemonic common sense. If the public doesn't see this as reasonable, then uh, policies that are taken without bringing the public along will be seen as perhaps risky. Uh, and so it's not simply about calling for policies to be made, but for a national conversation uh, about uh, to what extent and in what interest do we want to subordinate our sovereignty. Like I said, it's very hard to argue that we've suffered. I mean, this is still a wealthy country, peaceful, democratic, attracts immigrants from a lot of other countries around the world. Uh, but there is so much better that it can do, uh, provided it chooses not to be sub-imperial. On that uplifting note, I thank you for your time, Clinton. Clinton Fernandes, Professor of International and Political Studies at the University of New South Wales and the author of a provocative new book titled Sub-Imperial Power, Australia in the International Arena. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.